But Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful day you have given us. Thank you for the privilege of being here tonight once again. We ask that your Holy Spirit will instruct us tonight. Help us to understand what time in history we're living. As we look at what's happening in the world, we can't help but think but, uh, that there are momentous events right around the corner. And we want to know exactly what's going to take place so that we can be prepared. We ask that you will help us understand this lesson and to accept it and receive it in our hearts. And we thank you for your promise that you have heard us, that you will answer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, uh, let's go to the introduction of our lesson. And uh, <clears throat> then before we get into uh, number one, there's a little comparison that I want to do on the board. September 11 has been called the day which changed America forever. Just think of the aftermath of this watershed day. War in Afghanistan, followed by a devastating earthquake. United States troops in Yemen and the Philippines. Threats of war against the axis of evil, lest you, there's anybody here who doesn't know what that means. The threat of war of the United States against Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. Stock market blues, civil war in Colombia, riots in Argentina, social turmoil in Venezuela. Venezuela's in the news today. Terrible uh, riots on the streets. Corporate scandals, anthrax, parents killing their children, Al-Qaeda, attempted United States bombing, embassy bombing in Peru, suicide bombings in Israel, and a Middle East crisis which threatens to become global in scale. Sounds like a pretty depressing list, doesn't it? And this is only the tip of it. There's more I could have added, but uh, I didn't want to add any more pages to the material. What's in store for the land of the free and the home of the brave? In this lesson, we want to study the prophecy, what the Bible prophecy has to say about the origin and destiny of the United States of America. And we're going to study, as the introduction says, Revelation 13, verses 11 to 18. But before we do, I want to place a chart on the board so that we can realize where we are exactly in the flow of history. This will be a review. First of all, I want us to take a look at Revelation chapter 12. You remember there that we have a woman. At the time that John sees the woman, she has not had the male child yet, has she? So this represents what period? It represents the period of the Old Testament before Jesus was born. Of course, the Jewish nation, which is the bride of God, is, is in travail. They're, they're in pain because they want the deliverer to come. And then, of course, after that, you have a dragon beast. And what does the dragon beast represent? It represents Rome. Satan working through Rome because Jesus was born during the period of the Roman Empire. And then we discovered that this uh, dragon beast has how many horns? It has ten horns. And then we discovered that after the male child ascended to God into his throne, this dragon beast persecuted the woman for how long? 
for 1,260 years. Days, of course, in prophecy, a day is equal to a year. So in other words, uh, there came a period of persecution of 1,260 years. And when the church was being persecuted, when the woman was being persecuted, she fled to the wilderness. The Bible tells us that the dragon spewed water out of his mouth to try and drown the woman. But there was a certain power that came to the rescue of the woman. There was something that came to help the woman in the midst of her persecution. What was that? The Bible says that the earth helped the woman, and it helped the woman by swallowing up the waters of persecution that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now, we haven't talked about the earth much uh, in Revelation chapter 12 because we want to deal with it in our class tonight. But I want you to get this picture that the 1260 years of persecution, the earth, when she was being persecuted, helped the woman by swallowing up the waters of persecution. But that's not the end of the story in Revelation 12. Because it tells us there that when the earth helped the woman, the dragon became what? The dragon became wroth with the woman. In other words, the dragon became angry with the woman and went to make what? Went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And what characteristics uh, does that remnant have? Two characteristics. One, they keep the commandments of God. And secondly, they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those are the two things that the devil hates in this uh, remnant of the woman. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us that the devil was angry at the remnant because they keep the commandments of God because in heaven the devil hated the law of God. We've already studied that. The law was in the Ark of the Covenant. The devil is a sinner from the beginning. He's, he's the originator of lawlessness according to scripture. And so it's not surprising that he hates the people who keep the law at the end of time. Now, we also noticed uh, in our study that the dragon beast is going to have how many stages of existence? Stage number one was the 1260 years. Stage number two is when the deadly wound is healed, as it says in Revelation chapter 13. Now, let's go to Revelation 13 and compare this chapter with chapter 12. Where does Revelation chapter 13 begin? It begins in the Old Testament because it speaks of a leopard, a bear, and a lion in that order because John is looking what? Remember we studied this? He's looking backwards. And then he speaks about a what? He straight speaks about a dragon. Is this the same dragon of Revelation 12? Yes, it is, because it says that the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his authority. So you have this dragon beast. Does this dragon beast have ten horns? Yes, it does. You can read it there in Revelation chapter 13. It has ten horns. And then this dragon beast with the ten horns gives his seat and his authority and his power to whom? To the beast, which is the same as which power in Daniel 7? 
which is the same as the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, right? And, and it tells us there that the beast rules for how long? 42 months. By the way, does the beast persecute the saints? Yes? Does he speak blasphemies with his mouth? Is he the same as the little horn? Yes. But Revelation 13 is going to add something that Daniel 7 doesn't have directly. And that is that we are told that this beast receives a deadly wound. Now let me ask you, when do you suppose he received his deadly wound? At the middle of the 1260 years? 20 years before the 1260 years ended? Of course not. It must be that he received the deadly wound at the end of his period of dominion. Because if he received it before that, he wouldn't have had 1260 years of dominion. Are you following me? And so it tells us in Revelation 13 that the beast uh, is going to be healed from its wound. And the whole world is going to what? The whole world is going to marvel after the beast. Question, is that stage still future? In its fullness. Has the whole world wondered after the beast? No. It's in the process. But we haven't arrived there where the whole world is wondering after the beast. Now, let me ask you, what would be the next uh, thing that you would expect to find in the parallel between Revelation 12 and Revelation 13? You would expect to find the earth, wouldn't you? And certainly that's exactly what you find in Revelation chapter 13. Because it says that uh, John saw another beast, a second beast, rise from where? A second beast rose from the earth. Now, I want you to notice this is extremely important, what I'm going to say now. The earth is different than the beast from the earth. The earth is the territory. The beast is the government that arises in that territory. Raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying. Some of you didn't raise your hand, so I'm going to repeat it. I'll repeat it until it's necessary to not repeat it anymore. <laughs> Who gives refuge to the woman? The earth. What happens later in the earth? A beast arises from the earth. Must the earth have been there before the beast arose from it? Yes. The earth is the territory and the beast from the earth is the government or the country that rises in that territory. Now let me ask you, what would the next stage be that you would expect to find? Well, you might expect persecution to come against God's people. You might expect to find what? The dragon. Now it's interesting that it tells us that this beast arises from the earth and it has two horns like a lamb, but lo and behold, later on, it what? It speaks like a dragon. Can you see the sequence, the parallel sequence between uh, Revelation 12 and Revelation 13? It's clear. Now, we're going to study tonight about this second beast. This second beast has to arise after which date? 
it has to arise after 1798. Is that clear in your mind? Because it arises after the first beast receives its what? Its wound. And it has to arise before the end time persecution. And where is it going to arise, this beast? It's going to arise from the earth. Which we're going to find represents what? The United States. Are you understanding me? See, this is a disciplined study of Bible prophecy. This isn't guesswork. guesswork. This isn't prognosticating. This isn't just uh, saying, you know, like I read in many books, they say, oh yeah, this terrible Antichrist fellow is going to sit in the Jerusalem temple. And he's, he's going to make this great, and it's, by the way, he's going to have a, a, a crown on his head, and the crown is going to have the number 666. And then he's going to raise up this great big image of himself, and he's going to command everybody to come and bow down before that great big statue. The problem is, you have no biblical foundation, no historical foundation for knowing when that's going to happen, where that's going to happen, and what it means. You see, the, his, the, the beauty of the historical way of interpreting Bible prophecy is that you know exactly where you are at any given time in the flow of Bible prophecy. And you know exactly what's going to happen next, where it's going to happen, and what is going to take place, how it's going to take place. Is that clear in your mind? See, God has made it this way so that we don't have to guess when this is going to happen. We know that it's happening even as we speak. Now let's go to our lesson and work through uh, the first section which deals with identifying this power. We have already identified the first beast of Revelation 13 as the Roman Catholic papacy, correct? Yes. See, that's why we studied about the beast first. Because the image is of the beast. How can you know what the image is if you don't know what the beast is? Now, a second beast comes to view, verses 11 to 18. There are several things we want to underline about the origin of this second beast. First of all, a beast in prophecy represents a what? Represents a kingdom or a nation. So this beast must represent a nation or a kingdom. Is that clear in your mind? In the Bible, a beast represents a nation or a kingdom. So this is a beast, it must be a nation or a kingdom. Now that could refer to any nation or kingdom in the world. But this is a foundational point for the building pattern that we're going to follow in the next characteristics. Now notice number two. This beast does not arise from where? From the sea, like the previous ones, but rather from where? From the earth. This is the only beast in Revelation that rises from the earth. The other beasts rise from the sea, and there are two beasts, one in Revelation 11 and the other in Revelation 17 that arise from what is called the bottomless pit. And uh, you say, well, why, does one, why do some arise from the sea, some from the bottomless pit, and some from the earth? Do you suppose that these variations and details must have some importance? Of course they have to have importance, or else... John would have said all of them arose from the sea. There must be some difference. Now, let's read the note, a very important note. There is no mention of winds of strife, correct? This beast is not trampling and devouring other kingdoms, is it? 
There is no evidence that this beast had to fight any of the previous powers in order to gain dominion, correct? The fact that this kingdom rose from the earth and not from the sea indicates, indicates that it rises in a different place than the first four beasts. Would you agree with that? Where did the first four beasts rise from? From the waters. This one does not arise from the waters. So must it rise in a different place? Of course. Now let's continue the note. It is interesting to note that as prophecy fulfills, it moves from east to west. The first two beasts of Daniel 7 ruled in Asia. You look at a map, you'll find that Babylon and Medo-Persia were Asian powers. The third beast ruled in eastern or towards eastern Europe, which is Greece. The fourth beast with the ten horns and the little horn all ruled in western Europe. Do you know why prophecy uh, moves from east to west? Because God's people move from east to west. And prophecy follows God's people. Prophecy is never fulfilled independently of God's people. That's why prophecy cannot be fulfilled with the Jews today, because they have not accepted Christ, like we studied last night. If they'd accepted Christ, then we might say that prophecy would be fulfilled over there. But you see, prophecy is fulfilled with the people of God. And as Christianity moved west, prophecy moved west. Are you following me? Now, let's continue. We would expect this new beast to rule even further west than where? Than Europe. Now, if waters represent multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples, what must the earth mean where there are no waters? It must mean that there are no what? Multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. And strangely enough, as the fulfillment of prophecy moves west, the eyes of most Protestants are looking east. Tragic. Because they're looking for the fulfillment of prophecy in the wrong place. Number three. As we previously studied, the first beast ruled for 1260 years. And at the end of its dominion, it was wounded with the what? With the sword and was taken into captivity. When did this happen to the Roman Catholic papacy? In 1798. But actually, uh, you, this happens during a flow of events between 1793 culminating in 1798. Have you ever heard of the guillotine? The French Revolution, literally, priests were rounded up, prelates were rounded up, and their heads were chopped off. They were wounded with the sword, so to speak, and their leader was taken captive, just like it says here. This was literally fulfilled. This deadly wound was given by France when Pope Pius VI, by the way, I've been in the monastery where he spent nine of those months in exile. Later he was transferred to, to Valence in France and, and died there in exile. Uh, and uh, the tour guide that took us through the monastery, he took us to the chambers where Pius VI stayed uh, while he was in exile, and he mentioned how he had been taken prison there, prisoner there in 1798. So this is uh, not an invention of mine. I've read it in books, and I've seen it with my eyes. So it's the truth. Now this deadly wound was given by France when Pope Pius VI was taken prisoner by Napoleon's armies in 1798. The second beast came to power after the first beast was wounded because John said what? Amen. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. In other words, this second beast has to arise after which date? It has to arise after 1798. 
Now, I find it very interesting that the great uh, minister, John Wesley, in 1754, already suspected that this second beast was right around the corner. I don't know whether you read this historical reference. It's very interesting. He said this, Another beast is to arise, but he has not yet come, though he cannot be far off, for he is to appear at the end of the 42 months of the first beast. See, Wesley knew that the first beast had not fallen yet. He suspected that the first beast was going to fall soon and that then the second beast would arise as soon as the first beast fell. The important thing that I want you to see is the chronology here, the order. You have first the beast, it's wounded, and then you have the second beast which rises out of the earth. Now, number four. In 1798, this second beast had not reached the zenith of its power, had it? In fact, at that time, it was just coming into existence. It was seen by John, what? Coming up out of the earth. Now, it's interesting, in the New Testament, this uh, Greek word, anabaino, is used to describe a plant that is sprouting from the earth. In other words, in 1798, this kingdom or this nation was just sprouting from the earth. It had not reached the, the apex of its power. It was just starting to appear at that time. Number five, the beast from the earth does not really succeed the first beast, does it? Does this second beast knock off the first beast? Does it fight with the first beast? Does it struggle to get power from the first beast? No. This is the interesting thing. It is contemporaneous with the first beast. And it actually helps it what? It actually helps it regain its power. Have mercy. <laughs> the very place that provided refuge for God's people now becomes the very place through this empire, through this nation that arises to curtail and to take away that freedom which it once gave to God's people. Talk about schizophrenia. This is a schizophrenic beast. Because in reality, it's one way, and then it turns out to be a different way. Now, how do we know that this beast is contemporaneous with the first beast? Well, because it says that um, it exercises all the what? All the power of the first beast in his presence. In other words, they're, they're contemporaneous. They exist at the same time in history. But the second beast helps the first beast reg regain its power. Let's read the note. Each kingdom in Daniel 7 conquered and succeeded the previous kingdom. But this second beast becomes an ally of the first beast and actually helps it regain its power. The beast with lamb-like horns will actually enforce by might the principles and practices of the first beast. Are we going to have the same thing happen in the United States as happened in Europe during the Middle Ages? Yes. And do you know what led to the terrible time in Europe in the Middle Ages? The union of church and state. That's why our founding fathers knew this. They said in these United States, and I'm not talking about colonial America, because colonial America to a great degree reflected the principles of Europe. Do you know that if you didn't pay your tithes in church, you could be arrested and imprisoned in colonial America? Do you know that only Christians could vote in colonial America? Do you know that if you did not go to church on Sunday, as they believe the, the day of worship to be, you could be fined? And if you continued being rebellious and didn't attend, you could be executed? In colonial America, 
before our founding fathers drew up uh, the Articles of the Constitution and wrote the Bill of Rights. In these United States, there was intolerance, just like in Europe, and the founding fathers knew that. And by the way, we should not look at the founding fathers for the main principles of this country. We're supposed to look to an individual called Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, the colony of Rhode Island. Do you know that they persecuted him in Massachusetts? He had to flee for his life to and founded Rhode Island because he was not willing to blend church and state and he was not willing to curtail the liberties of people. He's a fascinating individual to study, Roger Williams. In fact, do you know that the metaphor of the wall of separation between church and state was not invented by Jefferson? It's already in the writings of Roger Williams. In fact, Thomas Jefferson and our founding fathers plagiarized <laughs> Mr. Roger Williams. It can be seen in their writings. Now, colonial America is not the ideal. You'll find religious leaders today that are saying, we need to go back to the time of the colonies when everybody went to church, when only Christians were in office, in political office, when everybody went to church on Sunday. That's what we need to do, go back to colonial America. That's not the ideal, because in colonial America, the union of church and state led to persecution of dissenters. Now, let's notice our next section. When this spout power was sprouting up, it had two what? Two horns like a lamb. lamb. Interesting that in book of Revelation, the word lamb is used 29 times. If you don't believe me, look, at, look it up in the concordance and count them. In every case except this one, it is a symbol of Christ. This must mean that this nation would have two Christ-like principles when it rose to power. Are you following me? Number two. The prophecy of Revelation 13, 11 to 18 indicates that this second beast, after its humble beginnings, would grow in power and worldwide influence. That is to say, it would become a world superpower. So you're supposed to look for a nation that in 1798 was just sprouting, and today is a superpower. How many nations fit that description? There's only one, folks. There's not even two. There's one. And that one is the United States of America. This is seen, now how do we know that? This is seen in the fact that it would use its influence to lead the whole world to what? To wonder after the beast. That is the first beast whose deadly wound was healed the first beast would also become a what? A worldwide superpower after its deadly wound was healed. So you would have a union of two worldwide superpowers. One, a religious superpower, which is the beast and the little horn, and the other, a what? A nation or a kingdom, which is a worldwide political power, joined together to fulfill a common purpose. Number three, in order to control who can buy and sell, this beast must have great what? Economic and technological power. Must it have a way of controlling buying and selling? It has to have. Do you need developed technology to be able to control buying and selling? You most certainly do. In fact, I believe, and this is my speculation based on what I've read and what I've been able to observe, I believe that eventually we're going to reach a cashless society in this country. 
and maybe even in the world. Everything will be done electronically through a micro microchip, an ID card, through reading the contour of your face or your iris or whatever it is, that's the way you're going to do your financial transactions. And for this, you have to have a worldwide economic power that has a technology to be able to control buying and selling. There's only one country in the world that fits that description, and that's the United States of America. Yes? In, in, the, in the note, of number one, it says two Christ-like principles. Mm -hmm. We're, the last half of the lesson has, has the exposition of that. You didn't study your lesson, did you? <laughs> Caught with the hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Just I, I'm pulling your leg. You don't mind, do you? No. Good. <laughs> okay. Last. Yes. Sure. That's true. You can't rent a car without a credit card. There's many transactions you can't do without a credit card, but uh, credit cards are going to be passe. There's going to be, you know, this is a way they're going to be able to control the movements of money of terrorist organizations. This is going to be the way that they'll be able to control the money in uh, drug-related uh, drug trafficking. Uh, you know, it's all an issue of control. After September 11, it's all about control. Imagine, uh, I was going to save some of these things till the end, and we probably won't be able to get to them, so I'll say them now. Uh, but, you know, imagine the lawyer uh, going into jail to talk to a client, and the government is wiretapping their conversation. There's no longer any attorney-client privilege. Because, because terrorism, terrorism overrules everything. See? The, the anti-terrorist legislation, the idea of military tribunals, the idea of having a national identification card. All of these things are preparing the way for what is described in Revelation chapter 13. Then there's also the uh, offshore banks. They're getting into their numbers now too. Oh yeah, and they will because eventually they'll reach the point where they'll, be, they'll control buying and selling by some mechanism, some control mechanism. Now, last part of number three. It must also have great what? Military strength in order to what? to enforce this law upon anyone who would want to dissent. In other words, you are with us, or you are with what? Or you are with the terrorists, to use uh, an expression that we've, that we've all heard. And if you don't, and if you were the terrorists, what are we going to do? We're going to attack you with our military might. Number four. This beast would ally itself with the first beast and make a what? An image of it and to it. What does that mean, an image of it? What is an image? It's a likeness. So in other words, was it going to build up a system similar to the system that the first beast had? And it's not only going to be of the beast, it's going to be what? To the beast. What does that mean? It's going to be in honor of the beast. It's going to be an image of the beast and to the beast means in honor of it. We know that the first beast blended church and state. Don't we know that? Yes. By our study? Thought it could change what? Yes. The times. That means changing God's what? God's prophetic calendar. How prophetic events are going to develop. And what else? The law. And what is the law? The Ten Commandments. 
and persecuted everyone who disagreed with it. An image is a likeness. This must mean that this second beast will enforce the principles, teachings, and methods of the first beast. And you say it could never happen in these United States of America. Never say never. Because prophecy says that it is going to happen. Even though we can't see its full development yet. Number five. You know, and when I think about this, it almost makes me want to cry. Because I'm a red-blooded America, American. I love this country. Greatest country that has ever existed in the history of the world. Not because it's more beautiful than other countries. Not because it has more money than other countries. Not because it has more military might than other countries. But because it is built on divine principles. The principle that everyone is free to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. The principle of full civil and religious liberty. And for those Christians who are saying that the government of the United States, because they don't say that you're, they don't mandate prayer in public schools, and be, because we don't put the Ten Commandments on public buildings and everything, uh, maybe they would feel more free in Afghanistan. The reason why the government does not mandate these things is because it's not the business of the government to mandate anything that has to do with religion. It's to keep out of religion. Religion belongs in the church. Listen, it is not government that has dropped the ball in the United States. It's the church that has dropped the ball. Because the church is supposed to be the leaven of, of the United States that makes it grow spiritually. But the problem is, ministers have told their church members, you're not under law, you're under grace. You don't have to worry, Jesus kept the law in your place. You know, you, you're, once you're saved, you can never be lost. You know, God's grace covers a multitude of sins. Don't worry about it. Everything was taken care of when Jesus died on the cross, and Christians have come to believe it. It's the church that is guilty for the situation. And just like it happened in the days of Constantine, when the church lost its power, in order to control people, it had to appeal to the arm of the state to do it. And because the church has not done its work today, and it's losing control, pornography is rampant, abortion is rampant, and all sorts of social evils are rampant, the church says to the state, Help! And the state is going to be brought in to correct what the church should have done, not by legislation, but by preaching. And by the way, I'm just as disgusted as any of you are with what Bill Clinton did. But I heard people saying, oh, the president should be the moral model of the United States. Listen, the day that a politician becomes the moral model of the United States will be the day that the world comes to an end. <laughs> my role models are my parents, my teachers, and my preachers, not the politicians. Because the politicians, by, by definition, are there to govern. They're not there to be perfect models of perfection, of moral perfection. Now you're quiet tonight. <laughs> Number five. The beast with the lamb-like horns exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Does he want to impress the first beast? Oh, yes. And what? And causes. What does that word causes mean? It makes. It makes. It forces. Yes. And causes the earth 
and those who dwell in it to do what? To worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The word causes here means the use of force. It would not persuade, but what? Coerce. Number six. The second beast would even go so far as to force people to receive the what? The mark of the beast. Now, in order to know what the mark of the beast is, do you know, need to know what the beast is? Sure. And who is the beast? We've already identified the beast. Who is the beast? The Roman Catholic papacy. So must we look for a mark that the Roman Catholic papacy has, which uh, it says that it shows that this is the mark of its power? Of course. Number seven. This beast is also called the what? The false prophet. Now, I want to dwell for a moment on this characteristic. It's called the false prophet. The false prophet of who? What is a prophet? Let me ask you first of all. Who does a prophet speak for? God. A prophet speaks for someone else, right? Speaks for God. For whom does the false prophet speak? And in the light of what we've studied, the relationship between the two beasts, for whom does this second beast speak? He speaks like a dragon, but he is actually speaking for the first beast. Isn't he implementing the principles of the first beast? The practices of the first beast? The teachings of the first beast? Yes, he's the false prophet of the beast. Now, by the way, do you know who this false prophet is? Notice the note. Well, let's finish the question. It says, and will deceive those who live on the earth by making what? Fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. This false prophet is the false who? It's a false prophet, Elijah. You're saying, well, how do you know that? Well, it's very simple. Which prophet in the Old Testament made fire come down from heaven in the sight of men? Elijah. Correct? All agreed? So if this false prophet, which is the same as the image, the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, in a moment we'll read that verse, it must mean then that if this false prophet of Revelation 16 verse 13 makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men to try and convince people that he's a true prophet, he must be a counterfeit prophet, Elijah. How many of you are understanding what I'm saying? Because the prophet that brought fire from heaven in the Old Testament was Elijah. So this is a counterfeit Elijah. Now, I'm going to give you a simple, simple formula of how you can know whether you're on the right side or the wrong side when crunch time comes. Two easy ways. If you are among the persecutors, you're on the wrong side. <laughs> and if you are among the persecuted, you're on the right side. Second, if you are among those that preach the same message that the true Elijah preached, you are on the right side. If you are on the side of the message that the false Elijah preaches, then you're on the wrong side. So we need to know what the true Elijah preached. And you know what the true Elijah preached? He preached two main things, If you and we're going to have a whole lesson on Elijah, so I'm not going to get real involved in this. He preached, first of all, 
against the false worship of the sun god Baal. He denounced sun worship, worshiping the sun god. And secondly, he denounced Israel because they had broken the commandments of God. You can find that in 1 Kings chapter 18. When Ahab comes and he says, oh, it's you, you troubler of Israel. Elijah says to him, it is not I that have troubled Israel, but it's you in your father's house because you have forsaken the commandments of God and you are worshiping Baal. You're worshiping the sun god. So in the end time, if you're with those who are preaching that we need to worship the true God and that we're supposed to keep his commandments, you're on the right side. If you preach the opposite, you're on the wrong side. God makes it very simple. Now, let's go to our next page and take a look at these characteristics and see how they have been fulfilled in the United States. Yes. Okay, the third part of number seven is this power is also referred to as the daughters of the harlot. Actually, it's referred to in three different ways. Okay? It's called the image to the beast. Three different ways of saying the same thing. It's called the daughters of the harlot. And it is called the false prophet. And all of these, all of these names, really to understand them, you have to go back to the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. By the way, who is the New Testament Elijah? John the Baptist. Do you know that the Old Testament Elijah had, uh, had three main enemies, didn't he? A king. He was a political ruler. Jezebel who was the leader of the false religion of the sun god, and the false prophets of Baal who spoke for Jezebel. Are you with me? Now in the New Testament, you also, John the Baptist is Elijah, not in person, but he came to do the same work that Elijah did in the Old Testament. Do you suppose that if in the New Testament, John the Baptist is uh, Elijah, that uh, his three enemies might must show up with him? Let me just get ahead of me of myself just a little bit here. You remember the story of the death of John the Baptist? You have a very interesting story in Mark chapter 6. John the Baptist denounced the fornication of Herod with Herodias. Just like Elijah denounced the union of Ahab with Jezebel. And of course Herodias was very furious about this. She didn't like to be denounced. And so it says that she wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. So to speak, she had a deadly wound. She had no influence over the king. But then the opportunity came. One day, we're celebrating his birthday, and the harlot's daughter came in. But the interesting thing is, after she danced, she doesn't go directly to the king and say, hey, I want half the kingdom. What she does is she goes to her mother and says, Mom, what should I ask for? Who's the dangerous figure in this story? It's the harlot mother. And she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Let me ask you, was this daughter the image of her mother? You read the story. I mean, hey, if, if I went into my mom, and my mom said, 
ask for such and such a person's head. I'd say, Mom! <laughs> what are you talking about? But, but when the mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist, she says, oh, okay. <laughs> and so she goes in and she says to the king, I want, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a platter. And the king knew that he was wrong in what he was going to do, but he, he was afraid of losing his political influence, just like it's going to happen at the end of time. Politicians will know that this union is wrong. But because they're afraid of not being reelected, of losing their political position, they'll go along. And the interesting thing is, John the Baptist was decapitated in prison. And then the Bible says that the, the person who executed John brought the head of John the Baptist on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Is this story going to be repeated in the end time? Yes, but it's not going to be repeated with one king. The king represents all of the kings of planet Earth. The harlot is not one literal harlot woman. It represents a harlot church, which is worldwide. And the, the image of the mother, or the daughter of the mother, or the spokesperson for the mother, the false prophet of the mother, represents... This country that will do what the mother church wants. And the result will be the attempt to slay God's end time Elijah. Is this an interesting story or what? See, uh, in Revelation 17 we have the fulfillment of this story. And we're going to study it later on. You have this harlot who's sitting on many waters. She's called the mother, so she must have daughters. She fornicates with the kings of the earth. There you have the threefold union again. But this time it's not three literal individuals, it's three worldwide systems. And it says that this harlot is filled with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, she's, she's a murderess, just like Herodias was and just like Jezebel was. There's nothing new under the sun. But anyway, we need to get back to the lesson. Let's see, where are we here? Okay, we're on page three. Oh, man. We've got to really get going here. Okay, number one. The United States is a bona fide nation or kingdom. Agreed? Okay. Number two. The United States did not have to war against any of the previous kingdoms of prophecy. Correct? Right. It did not arise in the midst of strife and war. Correct? Right. It arose in a different place than the previous kingdoms, west of Europe. Right? Right. The fact is, this second beast did not arise from waters. Indicates that the United States arose in a place where there were no multitudes, nations, and tongues. That is to say, a sparsely populated area. Is that true? Do you know how many inhabitants the United States had when the Declaration of Independence was signed? 262,000. That's amazing. Is that counting everybody in North America? In the United States, that is. Now, number three, the United States did arise to power when the first beast received its deadly wound. It is well known that the United States began to grow as a nation in 1776. Its constitution was signed in 1787 and the Bill of Rights was enacted in 1791. Amazingly, the first nation to recognize the United States diplomatically was France and the date was 1798. That is significant. Number four, 
1798, the United States was like a sprouting plant silently rising from the earth. Would you agree with that? Was the United States a superpower at that time? Absolutely not. Europe was far more powerful. Now notice, the editor of the Irish Nation wrote about the United States in 1850 the following. And by the way, this is a secular writer. He's not a religious writer, so he doesn't, he's not using the image of Revelation 13 knowingly. He says, in the West, an American empire is emerging. We islanders, of course, when he says islanders, he's talking about Great Britain. We islanders have no conception of the extraordinary events which, amid the silence of the earth, are daily adding to the power and pride of this gigantic nation. He's talking about the United States. Notice his, his terminology, amid the silence of the earth. Within three years, territories more extensive than these three kingdoms, in other words, uh, Ireland, Scotland, and England. I should have probably put that in brackets there. Uh, but anyway, you can add it. Then these three kingdoms, France and Italy, put together, have been what? Quite, see, no war, no winds, no waters in turmoil, have been quietly and in almost matter-of-course fashion annexed to the Union. David J. Burstyn, who for years was the librarian of Congress, pointed out in his 1975 Wreath Lectures in London that, and I quote, the vacancy of North America was to prove to be its peculiar promise to the world. Emptiness was America's special fertility. And once again, he's not even thinking about Revelation chapter 13, but he's echoing what we find in Revelation 13. And of course, G.A. Townsend in his book, The New World Compared with the Old, page uh, which is quoted in, uh, in the Signs of the Times, says this, the history of the United States was separated by a beneficent providence from the wild and cruel history of the rest of the continent, and like a silent seed, we grew into an empire. Interesting terminology. Fits perfectly with what we find in Revelation 13. Number five. The United States did have two foundational Christ-like principles upon which she built the Republic, even though Reconstructionists and revisionists of our early history of, uh, want, to, want to say that no, our founding fathers were not for the separation of church and state. They were just against establishing a national church. And, and they'll say all kinds of things like this. But the founding fathers were clear on this point. There were two principles. These two principles are known as Protestantism. A church without an absolutist pope. See, in Europe, the pope was the absolute religious monarch. What he said went. In other words, the government was from up down. There was a government of the pope, by the pope, and for the pope. Protestantism means a church without a pope. That is full religious liberty to worship according to the dictates of conscience. And republicanism, where we get the word republic from. A state without an absolutist king, because in Europe there were monarchies. It was from up, down, in civil matters too. The king spoke and people did what the king said. It was the government of the king, by the king, and for the king. Republicanism means a state without an absolutist king. In other words, full civil liberty to speak, to assemble, to vote rulers in and out of office, the right to privacy, etc. In short, a government of, by, and for the people. A government from down up, not from up down. 
These two principles entail a separation of church and state. The founding fathers well knew what had happened in Europe when church and state were welded together. Trouble is, the writers today, they're removed over 200 years from what happened in Europe. They don't have the foggiest idea what it was like. That's why they try to revise history and tell us, oh no, if the United States just, you know, if the churches just could use the state to moralize America, to forbid abortion, and to curtail pornography, and do all of these things, then this country would get back to its roots. The fact is, folks, that if you want to get rid of abortion, and you want to get rid of pornography, if you want to get rid of all these social evils, you cannot do it by legislation. The heart has to be changed. So they're going about it the wrong way. George Bush was named to govern. He wasn't named to be the preacher of America. This is why the First Amendment to the Constitution says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Uh, and, and of course, uh, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist has reinterpreted this to mean that what the Founding Fathers uh, really believed was that uh, the Constitution forbids the government establishing a church of, over and above other churches. In other words, the, this is prohibiting establishing a church as a favorite church, a national church, as opposed to other churches. But the Founding Fathers were careful in the way that they phrased this First Amendment because they said, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, not a religion, not even a church, but religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The two clauses have come to be known as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The two clauses have come, uh, this all is also the reason why Article 6 of the Constitution says, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. And of course, you all know that organizations like the Christian Coalition for a long time sent out report cards on the people who were, going, who were running for office so that you could know who to vote for and who not to vote for. The people in colonial America, particularly Roger Williams, would have loved uh, to have the protection of Article 6, but this was before their time. They're after their time. They were uh, after uh, Roger Williams' time. Next page. These two principles were actually taught by Jesus long before the Founding Fathers when he said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Do you know where the, where the power of the church... Uh, uh, comes in and where the power of the state ends, it's very simple. You see, the Ten Commandments have two tables. The first table has the first four commandments and the second table has the last six. The government has the right to enforce the last six, but it has no right to do anything connected with the first four. Unless, when you claim to be obeying the first four, you're infringing one of the last six. For example, the terrorists. Didn't they claim freedom of religion to crash those planes into the World Trade Center? So, they had the right of free exercise, right? <laughs> no. Because those who truly keep the first four will also keep the last six. Are you following what I'm saying? So, you know, if I wanted to make this, this whiteboard my object of worship, the government couldn't say anything about it. 
couldn't say anything against it. In fact, if I wanted to open my mouth and with the worst, most foul language, I wanted to blaspheme God, which I wouldn't do, I could do it in the United States of America. And the government could not say, you can't do that. Because religion is the realm of whom? Is the realm of God. The problem comes when the government starts trying to legislate the first four commandments of the law of God. That's what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, the king tried to enforce worship. He tried to tell Daniel, this is in the Medo-Persian kingdom now, you can't pray to your God. And of course, Daniel and his friends practiced civil disobedience. Because when it comes to obeying God, it's necessary to obey God before you obey men. But what's going to happen in this country, this country is going to enforce religious observance. It's going to impose the mark of the beast. And in a moment we'll get to the mark of the beast. When Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world, he refused them. He also told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. When Peter wanted to defend Jesus with the sword, he was severely rebuked by Christ. When the disciples wanted to call fire down from heaven upon the apostate Samaritans, Jesus said, bring it on. No. <laughs> Jesus rebuked them. In fact, Jesus was killed when the Jews joined with the Romans. Do you know the Jews of Christ? They said, uh, we can't execute the death penalty, so we need you. That's exactly what they said. Read it in John 19. And so the only way they could get rid of Jesus was by joining their church with the Roman state. And that's going to be repeated all over again with the people of God. Yes, it was a church-state alliance which killed Jesus. Stories from the Old Testament illustrate the same point. When King Nebuchadnezzar took it upon himself to enforce worship, God had to intervene to deliver his people. The same could be said about the deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den. Benjamin Franklin once said, when religion is good, I can see that it will support itself. And when it does not support itself, and God does not take care to support it, so that its professors are obliged to call for the help of the civil powers, tis a sign I apprehend of it being a bad one. <laughs> Wise words. Engraved on the Jefferson Monument in Washington, D.C. are these memorable words. And uh, I once again, uh, we had took a trip the last fall to uh, visit certain sites in New England, and we went to the Jefferson Memorial, and I just stood there uh, remembering these words that are, that are written here. He said this, Almighty God hath created the mind free. All attempts to influence it by temporal punishment or burdens are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. No man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship or ministry, or shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief. But all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matters of religion. I know but one code of morality for men who, whether acting singly or collectively. And by the way, you know what, you know what uh, force does? What persecution does? It creates hypocrites or martyrs. And what I mean by that is if you're afraid of dying, you might say, oh, I'll go along. I'll go along. You're a hypocrite. You don't believe it, but in order to save your life, you're unfaithful. Or martyrs, if you're faithful, you get killed. So coercion never changes the heart. 
Notice the words of George Washington to the Baptist delegation on August 8, 1789. He said, if I could have entertained the slightest apprehension that the Constitution framed by the convention where I had the honor to preside might possibly endanger the religious rights of any ecclesiastical society, certainly I would never have placed my signature to it. And if I could now conceive that the general government might ever be so administered as to render the liberty of conscience insecure, I beg you will be persuaded, I beg you will be persuaded that no one would be more zealous than myself to establish effectual barriers against the horrors of spiritual tyranny in every species of religious persecution. For, you doubtless remember, I have often expressed my sentiments that any man conducting himself as a good citizen and being accountable to God alone for his religious opinions ought to be protected in worshiping the deity according to the dictates of his own conscience. So there you have words by Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. Obviously great authorities in the foundation of our country. Number six. The United States is a contemporaneous power with the Roman Catholic Church, right? Yes. And as we shall see, it is helping the papacy recover its power. Um, lest I don't have time to mention this, uh, I'll just uh, maybe tell you uh, one episode here. Uh, this is uh, Time Magazine for February 24, 1992. You have a picture of, uh, you have, uh, the title says, Holy Alliance, how Reagan and the Pope conspired to assist Poland's solidarity movement and hasten the demise of communism. The article is fascinating on how the politicians of the United States joined the Holy See in Rome and that union led to the demise of communism. And what's even more amazing is that an author by the name of Malachi Martin, Jesuit priest who died under mysterious circumstances recently, wrote a book the name of the book is The Keys of This Blood. It's a large book written in 1990, or published in 1990, where basically the gist of the book is that there are three powers today in the world, in, his, uh, in the day when he was writing, that are competing for world dominion. He says one of them is communism. The second is Western capitalism, reflected primarily in the United States. And the third is Roman Catholicism. And this whole book, which I've read the whole book, it's a fascinating book, not easy reading, but it's, it's worthwhile reading. Uh, he says that uh, there's only one of these powers who is going to have a worldwide dominion, and that's the Roman Catholic Church. And he says the reason why is because Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom, and he told him that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And because Christ gave Peter the, Peter the keys, which... Uh, um, uh, we, we would have to study that whole passage to see what it really means. Uh, it's guaranteed that the papacy will be the power that will govern the whole world. And uh, interestingly enough, since he wrote this, the Soviet communism has fallen. And Western capitalism is in a on a quick road to decay. So what's next? He's right. And by the way, he says in this book that... Uh, over for over 200 years, the civil powers of the world have imposed inactivity upon the Roman Catholic Church. 200 years takes you about back to 1798. He says the civil powers of the world have imposed uh, a period of inactivity of over 200 years upon the Roman Catholic papacy. But he says that that inactivity is going to come to an end when the Roman Catholic Church ascends to the power, uh, to the power and to the throne of the world. Uh, interestingly enough, 
Uh, there's a, another book here called His Holiness, written by uh, Carl Bernstein and Marco Politi, where they describe this whole cooperation between the United States and, uh, and the Vatican in trying to overthrow Soviet communism. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you want to get an interesting book, get this one. It's fascinating to see what happened behind the scenes. I could tell you about what's happening in the United States Congress. It's amazing. After September 11, the House of Representatives voted 444 to nothing to urge schools to put uh, in a visible place, in God we trust, in front of the school. That would have never happened before September 11. Since when does the government mandate putting in public schools in God we trust. Now you're saying, well, are you an atheist, Pastor Barr? No, I'm not an atheist. They highly recommended. Yes, they highly recommended it be done. Before September 11, they wouldn't have even highly recommended it. You would have half of the Congress that would have said, no, uh, uh, this can't happen. But without uh, a voice of protest, they voted unanimously that this is what they were going to do. In this book called uh, Ecclesiastical Megalomania, written by a Presbyterian, uh, on page 195, he says uh, this very interesting, uh, these very interesting words. And uh, they're more prophetic than he realizes. He says, the Roman church state in the 20th century, however, is an institution recovering from a mortal wound. Who does he say is recovering from the mortal wound? The Roman church state. And then he says this. If and when it regains its full power and authority, it will impose a regime more sinister than any the planet has yet seen. Written by a Presbyterian. And there's much more that I wanted to share with you, but we don't have time. We have to finish going through this. Uh, did I see somebody send? Okay, now let's go through this quickly. Um, number seven. The United States has become a worldwide superpower. Agreed? Yes. Politically, economically, technologically, and militarily. In 1701, oh, it was 1701 that the United States, has, states had 262,000 inhabitants. 1776, it had grown to 2,800,000. At present... It is populated by over 250 million and covers an area of over 8 million square miles. In every sense of the word, the United States has grown from small beginnings into a mighty empire. Number eight, it seems unbelievable, but the power which had two horns like a lamb will end up speaking like the dragon. The United States will help the papacy get its power back, and it's happening right now. It will blend the church and state and impose the mark of the beast on pain of death. We have seen that the sea beast represents the papacy. The land beast represents the United States. But what is the mark of the beast? Well, let's allow the papacy itself to tell us what the mark of the beast is. And I'm only reading two statements. By the way, the material on Daniel 7 is here. So as you go out tonight, you'll be able to pick it up. There's close to 20 pages in there of additional statements besides the two that I have here. So this is only two representative statements. Protestants profess great reverence for the Bible, and yet by their solemn, by, by their, um, solemn act of keeping Sunday, they acknowledge the power of the Catholic Church. The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But the Catholic Church says, no, 
Keep the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilized world bows down in reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. What do they do? Bow down in what? In reverent obedience. Let me ask you. If the Bible says that the Sabbath is the day that we're supposed to keep, the seventh day Sabbath, and we keep instead Sunday, which was the day established by the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the 4th and 5th centuries primarily, and then it grew after that, whose authority are you accepting when you keep Sunday? Are you accepting God's authority? No. You're accepting the authority of the power that claims to have changed God's law. And by the way, if you can change God's law, you would have to be what? You would have to be God. And we've seen that this power claims to have the power and prerogatives of God. In the second statement, it was the Catholic Church, which by the authority of Jesus Christ, I'd like to see where that authority is in the New Testament, has transferred this rest to Sunday in remembrance of the resurrection of our Lord. Thus, the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the Catholic Church. Notice the word homage. In one final statement, in 1895, a man called J.F. Snyder wrote to Cardinal James Gibbons and asked him the following question. Does the Roman Catholic Church claim the act of changing the observance of the Sabbath from the seventh to the first day of the week as a mark of her power? Chancellor H.F. Thomas, who was the secretary for Cardinal Gibbons, responded in the following words. Of course the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act. It could not have been otherwise, as none in those days would have dreamed of doing anything in matters spiritual and ecclesiastical and religious without her. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. It is a what? A mark. Notice the word that is used. Now, um, I've mentioned a few things here about what's going on. I could read you statement after statement after statement by religious leaders in Protestantism today where they're saying that we need to join church and state. I could read you statements by the Chief Justice of the United States, also Clarence Thomas uh, who's, uh, and, and uh, Antonin Scalia, who are uh, justices on the Supreme Court. I could read you statements by uh, Senator Torricelli from uh, New Jersey where he, he's proposing that nobody can speak badly about any other religion and that it be implemented as law in the United States. Uh, I, it's one thing right after another that's happening in these United States right now, particularly after September 11. That's why I believe that what happened September 11 is of critical importance. It's a watershed event in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, yes? Also the fact that President Bush instituted a day of mourning and worship. Yes. The, yeah. Well, only Abraham Lincoln did during the Civil War, but you know, technically, it's unconstitutional. Uh, it, but there's so many things, you know, that that we could talk about that we don't have time to talk about uh, what's happening in the United States right now. Allow me to finish just by mentioning um, a little bit more about the mark of the beast. The Book of Revelation presents the seal of God and the mark of the beast in contrast. It says in Revelation that God's people have what? The seal of God where? In their foreheads. And, the, and those who follow the beast have the mark of the beast where? In their right hand or in their forehead. 
So you have two marks. And the marks, the mark of God is in the forehead, the mark of the beast is in the forehead or in the right hand. Now, if I had time, I would show you biblically that what God places on the forehead is his holy law. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10, God says, I will, I will write my laws in their what? In their minds and in their hearts. And Jesus told Israel, these words of the law, you should bind as frontlets between your eyes and you should put them on your hand. In other words, they should guide your thinking and they should guide your what? They should guide your doing. Thinking and doing. I could also mention Isaiah 8.16 where, where God says, seal my law among my disciples. The very word seal is used. In fact, I could quote Revelation 14 verses uh, 9 through 11 where it speaks about nobody, nobody should receive the mark of the beast. And then immediately after that, it says, but here are they who keep the commandments of God. In other words, those who keep the commandments of God are in contrast to those who receive the mark of the beast. And by the way, the first angel's message, we're going to have a whole lesson on the three angels' messages. The first angel's message, uh, which God gives to this world, is that we're supposed to worship the one who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. That is the creator. And the sign of the creator is his holy Sabbath. Folks, you can look from Genesis to Revelation in your Bible, and you will never find any verse where it says that God ever changed his day of worship. You look in vain. It's not there. But you can look throughout the whole Bible and you find that God, from the very beginning, before sin came into this world, established a day of worship. It was a seventh-day Sabbath. And he gave it to man as a sign that he's the creator. Some people say, well, you know, that the Sabbath, that was for the Jews, and that pointed forward to the death of Christ on the cross. The problem with that is that the Sabbath was created before there was even sin or any need of a cross. The Sabbath was created in the Garden of Eden. It's part of God's original plan. And I find it ironic that many spiritual leaders in the world today, they'll say, uh, you know, uh, for example, I'll ask one of them, I'll say, do, do you believe that it's okay for a man to marry a man? Oh, no, they say. Where do you get that from? I said, well, isn't okay? No. And I say, why not? Well, because in Genesis it says that God made a male and female. And God created marriage. I said, do you know what else God created in Genesis? The Sabbath. So why do you say that marriage still applies but the Sabbath doesn't? See, the Bible says that if you keep the whole law but you offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole law. The devil doesn't care if you only trample on one of the ten because it, it serves its purpose. You see, the, the, the papacy changed the law of God in this one particular commandment. But this one commandment is at the center of the ten commandments because it identifies God as the creator. And so by removing this one from the law and placing the first day of the week in the law, they have removed the seal from the law of God. So, you know, we have to decide whether we're going to serve God or we're going to serve man. Whether we're going to follow the word of God or whether we're, we're going to follow, follow tradition as it's been followed in the, in the church. And sadly, the United States is going to adopt this very day and it's going to enforce it by decree 
that whoever does not keep it does not receive the mark of the beast. It says in Revelation 13 that they will even be sentenced to death. And you say, how is that possible? Well, man can be very cruel when he's destituted of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is being slowly removed from planet Earth. And with all his Spirit is totally removed, only the protection of God is going to keep his people alive. But we must make a commitment to the Lord today. You want to make that commitment to the Lord tonight? Say, I would rather obey God than men. You want to raise your hand and say that to the Lord? Praise God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for making prophecy so simple and so clear. Our hearts are saddened as we see what is going to happen to this great country of ours. Country that you raised up as a place of refuge for your persecuted people in Europe. A place that has been a wonderful place for people that come uh, from many countries in the world to find freedom and peace. But Lord, we're saddened when we see that prophecy tells us that this nation is going to change. Whereas it had these two Christ-like principles, it's going to end up speaking like the dragon. Lord, we know that without your protection in the events that are coming, there would be no hope. But we thank you that you've shown us in your word that you will be with your people. I ask, Lord, that you will help everyone here to make a decision tonight to be faithful to you in receiving your seal and in rejecting the beast and his image and his mark. Help everyone to make the right choice. We thank you, Lord, for having been with us tonight. And I ask that you will help these words to remain in our minds and in our hearts. We thank you for hearing our prayer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.